But it all began on Palm Sunday, and this morning that's what we're celebrating. And so we're looking at Jesus' triumphant entry, the event that set the stage for what was to come. So if you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, if you'll raise your hand, one of our ushers will put a Bible in it. Anybody need a Bible this morning? We're in Luke chapter 19. The title of my message today, A Big Day. That's what it was, A Big Day. Luke chapter 19, let's begin this morning in verse 29. Luke 19, verse 29. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city. And he wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Father in heaven, we ask that you give us understanding and insight into what happened that day. For it was a big day, and yet your people missed it. Lord, help us not miss our day and the opportunities you give us to draw closer to you. Bless us now, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. When a woman discovers the news that she's expecting a baby, her very next thought is to calculate the due date. With her doctor's help, 
she's supposed to be able to pinpoint her baby's day of arrival. Well, maybe. Kathy and I have had four kids, and if my memory's correct, none of them arrived on their due date. In fact, statistics say that only 4% of kids are born on the day the doctor says they're due. Due date setting is not an exact science. Actually, doctors hedge a bit. They give themselves two weeks margin of error, you know, both before and after the due date. The baby can come two weeks before or after. In reality, that baby's going to come when that baby decides to come. But if God were setting the due date, he could pinpoint a child's arrival to the very day, to the hour, to the minute, even to the second. For God dwells outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. He has 20-20 foresight, not just hindsight. And that is exactly what God did for the nation Israel. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, he forecasted Messiah's due date to the precise day. In the Old Testament, God promised Israel a king. But not just any king. A king who would rule the world forever. At the coronation of a Hebrew monarch, a ram's horn of olive oil was poured over the new king's head. This anointing accompanied his appointment. That's why the promised deliverer was referred to as the anointed one, or in the Hebrew language, the Messiah. See, God impregnated the nation Israel with the promise of this future deliverer, a Messiah, to Jacob and to David and to Isaiah and to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel. This promise was repeated. But to Daniel, God pinpointed the exact due date. Over 500 years in advance, God predicted the day Messiah would present himself to Israel. After God's prophecy to Daniel, Jews could count off the days on a calendar. Modern science can't predict the day of a baby's arrival nine months from delivery. But God set a date for Messiah's appearance centuries in advance. Let me summarize for you the amazing and miraculous prediction That we find in Daniel chapter 9. It was the mid-6th century B.C. Around the year 540. Daniel and the Hebrews were serving a divine time out. In a faraway city called Babylon. Israel had disobeyed God. And as punishment God had incited the Babylonian army to sack the capital of Jerusalem. The conquering army had taken Daniel and his fellow Jews captive back to Babel. The situation for Israel was bleak. The future seemed uncertain. And yet into the darkest day in the nation's history, God interjected a startling hope. For the the angel Gabriel came to the prophet Daniel. And he told him that God had blocked out on his divine calendar a period of 70 weeks Literally, 70 sets of seven years, or 490 years, were determined to bring grace and glory to Israel. You might say Gabriel went way out on a limb. In Daniel 9, verse 25, he tells Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command 
to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's a total of 69 weeks or 483 years. Now realize God's precision here. 483 years to the day will elapse from the proclamation to rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem until the presentation of the Messiah to the nation. From the proclamation to the presentation, 483 Babylonian years, that is 360 day years, or more specifically 173,880 days, if you want to get exact, will transpire. History confirms that a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem was issued by the Persian king Artaxerxes on March the 14th, 445 B.C. When you calculate the days, taking into account 116 leap years, a partial month from March to April, and the fact that there's no year zero on the Julian calendar, you arrive at the date April the 6th, 32 A.D. Realize this was not an estimation or an approximation. The God in heaven was being very, very exact. He picks a specific date on the timeline, April the 6th, 32 A.D., which brings us back to Luke 19, verse 29. It could read, And it came to pass... On April the 6th, 32 A.D., when he came near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mountain called Olivet. On the first Palm Sunday, Jesus rode the donkey down the mountain to the cheers and jeers of the crowd. And it was the exact day that Daniel foresaw 540 years earlier. God showed his servant Daniel a glimpse of the future and blessed him with a prediction that stands as one of the irrefutable, undeniable testimonies to the deity of Jesus and his messianic claims. God wanted there to be no confusion, no fuzziness here as to the identity of his Son and our Savior, so he pinpointed ahead of time, over 500 years ahead of time, the arrival of the King of Kings, Jesus of Nazareth. It was God's Save the date. On a sunny spring day, much like this one, the Messianic procession, it climbed up the Mount of Olives and down its western slope, moving at donkey speed. The masses rolled out the Hebrew version of the red carpet, laying their clothes and their palm branches across the road. The donkey Jesus rolled, strolled past the Garden of Gethsemane, crossed the Kidron Valley. Then it climbed the Temple Mount and entered into the Holy City through the Eastern Gate. The big day had arrived. After a 483-year pregnancy, Israel's promise had come to term. On the exact day predicted, Messiah arrived in the Holy City and presented Himself to Israel. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He had left Galilee nine months earlier, and he had timed his arrival for this exact day. He knew its prophetic significance, and he had plotted his movements in advance. 
his time of arrival would have made any airline proud. This was a big day. It was a day anticipated in heaven and prophesied on earth. This was the biggest day in the life of a nation whose history was chock full of big days. April the 6th, 32 AD was the biggest of all. This morning, I want to make five points about this special day. First, it was a day of preparation. Second, it was a day of celebration. Third, this was a day of evaluation. Fourth, it was a special day of visitation. And fifth, April the 6th, 32 AD, was a day of destination. This was such a special day, it has ramifications for all our days. You see, prior to this day, time had marched on. After this day, time will point backwards. But I believe if you had been there for this monumentous day, you would have had the sense that you were frozen in time. For one day, all of time stood still. Everyone's life, for all time, was in a sense compressed into this single day. Think of it, your life is full of days. We all experience days of preparation. Some days of celebration. There are days of evaluation and there are some very, very special days of visitation. And it's in those special moments with God that ultimately those days turn into days of destination. Well, today we're going to walk with Jesus. We'll start near Bethpage on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives where Jesus hitches a ride on a borrowed donkey. Then we'll follow him over the crest of the hill and down the western slope into the city. And we'll look closely at what this day held for him and holds for us. Well, first, this was a day of preparation. Notice verse 29. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. Hey, every big event calls for a certain amount of preparation. My wife's late uncle Bob worked in Hollywood for a company that would throw parties for movie stars. Uncle Bob was personal friends with John Wayne. That's why I liked him the moment I met him. In fact, go to Uncle Bob's house, and it always looked like he was throwing a party. Walk out into his backyard, and he had tiki torches set up, and white wicker chairs, and colorful streamers, and decorative lighting flew from the trees. It was always a party atmosphere. Bob specialized in preparations for big events. And here the disciples are preparing for Israel's big day. First, they supplied the proper transportation. And you might question, 
Why a donkey? And why an unbroken donkey? I mean, one that had never been ridden. Hey, if Jesus is king, why not ride in a chariot pulled by white stallions, the ancient equivalent of a limousine? But again, these preparations were no accident. For every move that Jesus makes this day was laced with purpose. You see, not only was Jesus' timing in sync with prophecy, so was his transportation. For Zechariah 9, verse 9 had predicted, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Understand, prior to King Solomon, the Hebrews considered donkeys to be royal animals. In Deuteronomy 17, God had prohibited the king from accumulating horses, lest he trust in his cavalry rather than his God. That's why David rode on a donkey. And in choosing a donkey here, Jesus was drawing a connection with the promise of the king that God had made to David. Jesus' donkey ride here bolstered his claim to the throne and his right to rule. And certainly his right to rule is significant for us today. For Jesus died to be our Savior. He came to be our great shepherd. He chooses to be our friend. He was born to be our elder brother. He's our Savior, our shepherd, our friend, our big brother. But first and foremost, he comes to each of us riding on a donkey, for he is our king. For years, I wanted Jesus to save me, but I wasn't really willing to lay aside my agenda and follow him. And in looking back, those were the most miserable years of my life. You see, you can't follow Jesus until you see him on a donkey, until you surrender to him as your king and your Lord and your boss. Vance Havner put it this way, I came to Christ as a country boy. I didn't understand all the plan of salvation. But one thing I did understand, even as a lad, I understood that I was under new management. I belonged to Christ, and he was Lord. No one truly knows Jesus without bowing to his authority and surrendering to his will. A king expects our allegiance. It's been said, Jesus will never save what he cannot rule. Jesus is not just our Savior, he's also our Lord and our King. He comes to us riding on a donkey. Several years ago, a luxury car manufacturer came out with a slogan. You may have seen it. You are what you drive. The first time I ever heard that slogan was on the very day my mechanic gave me the depressing news that the old jalopy I'd been driving had finally died. And I can remember thinking, if I am what I drive, I am in big trouble. But in choosing to ride a donkey, Jesus was making this statement about himself. For in addition to transporting kings, a donkey in Israel was a beast of burden. It was a pack animal, a servant. And in riding on a donkey, Jesus was depicting his mission on earth. For Jesus had come to humanity with humility. In his own words, not to be served, but to serve. 
Jesus was a king, all right, but a different type of king. His kingdom is not one of earthly pomp and power. It's spiritual. He rules not with a rod of iron, but with cords of love. He doesn't govern institutions, but individuals. He establishes his throne, not in halls, but in hearts. For Jesus, it's true. He is what he drives. Though he's the boss, he's not bossy. He's a benevolent dictator. He's a king, but he's kind. He demands exclusive rights to our lives. But once he gets them, his goal is to make our lives better. You know, most kings like to keep their people down. Jesus lifts his people up. Jesus uses his power to bless, not suppress. Jesus is the ultimate public servant. That's why he came riding on a donkey. And it's a mistake for you not to follow him. Genesis 49 verse 11 had predicted that Messiah would bind his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This is why Jesus told his disciples, you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. It was a miracle that they had found the donkey just as Jesus told them and as the scripture had predicted. But also notice the miracle when Jesus climbed on the donkey's back. Remember, this was an untamed animal. It had never been broken. And donkeys are notorious for what? Their stubbornness. And yet immediately this animal grew docile under the weight of Jesus. It was struck by a sudden compliance. Apparently there was something about Jesus that caused the donkey to relax and give in and trust and willingly submit to the direction that the master had in mind. And this is what walking with Jesus is all about for us. For these are days of our preparation. Jesus is training us that he loves us and that he can be trusted. He wants to take the reins of your life and lead you gently. Will you relax? Will you give in? Will you surrender to his will and rely on Jesus and submit to whatever and wherever the master has in mind? These are days of preparation for us as well. And this was also a day of celebration. For read verse 35. And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowd here quotes Psalm 118. It was a messianic psalm that addressed the Messiah himself. The other day I was at my grandson's baseball game when the moms were discussing their child's choice of walk-up music. Apparently each kid has a song that's played as they come to bat. And my daughter-in-law, she actually turned to me and she said, what walk-up music did you have when you played baseball? I said, the national anthem, maybe. It's the only song they played when I played baseball. 
Walk-up music? Are you kidding me? I played in the Flintstone era. But notice on this special day, Jesus had his own walk-up music. You see this? The crowd sang out this holy psalm. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Realize this was the only time in Jesus' earthly ministry that he orchestrated a public demonstration. You see, in the Gospels, you'll never find Jesus organizing a rally or renting a stadium or promoting an evangelistic rally. Usually, he shunned the crowds. He told the recipients of his miracles not to tell anyone. He low-keyed his wonders to avoid mass hysteria. He kept a low profile. But this day was different. Rather than recoil from public attention here, Jesus invites it. And he welcomes the worship of the crowd. For this was a day of celebration. On my first trip to Jerusalem, just before we arrived on the Mount of Olives, the bus driver all had us close our eyes. He pulled off to the side of the highway and he had us all close our eyes until he gave us the word. In the meantime, he wheeled the bus into position so that our first look of the city would be the shot that you see on the postcards. And man, when our eyes opened, our jaws dropped. The view was breathtaking. And likewise, as Jesus' burrow crested this hill, the disciples were treated to the very same view. The holy city stretched out before them in all its glory. The sun glistening off the gold-plated temple. From the Kidron Valley all the way up the slope of the mountain, there were people gathered next to the narrow, windy path. The people were there to praise their coming king. This was a Mardi Gras of grace. Not a fat Tuesday, but a fat Sunday. The atmosphere that day was electric. You see, the path was rock and dirt. But on this day, people paved it with extravagance. They laid down palm branches. They lined the street with their coats and their robes. They shrouded the whole event with thunderous praise. No expense of emotion or effort was spared. This was fanfare fit for a king. And in the midst of our countless entertainments, let's not forget a foundational truth. We were created to praise God as well. Yes, the reason we exist and our purpose for eternity is to stir up a little fanfare for Jesus. How you been doing on that? Whenever we get distracted with lesser pursuits, we need to recall Revelation 4 verse 11. It takes us back to the heart of our existence. The heavenly host is singing praise. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. We were created. And we exist today to bring God pleasure. After thousands of failures, one night Thomas Edison, he discovered the secret for his invention. His light bulb illuminated he was so excited. He raced from his lab to the bedroom to tell his wife the news. But she didn't even let him finish his sentence. She said what every sleepy wife says to her husband. All right, Thomas, turn off the light and come to bed. See, Mrs. Edison 
let a colossal truth with profound implications sail right over her head. Thomas Edison's invention changed the world. But she told him to turn off the light and come to bed. And this can happen to us. We can completely miss the big idea. The reason you were invented. You and I were created to glorify God. To praise His great name. So why do we pursue fulfillment through every other means? We're like the fish that's been caught. Sin hooks us and takes us out of the environment for which we were created. But then when we praise Jesus, we're like that fish getting thrown back into the lake. We're alive again. On that special Sunday, the crowd threw a party of praise. We should do the same every Sunday. In fact, every day with Jesus should be a day of celebration. But this day was also a day of evaluation. You've heard it said, everybody loves a parade. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but that's not true. For notice verse 39. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees had an attitude. Reminds me of the New York City candy bar I saw advertised not long ago. All you former New Yorkers will like this. It's called De Bronx Bar. And the label reads, it's just milk chocolate. You got a problem with that? Well, the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus. They knew Psalm 118 was intended for the Messiah only. That's why they scolded Jesus for letting the crowd ascribe praise to himself. It was a sin to the first degree in their minds to steal glory from God. And on this day, the jealous Pharisees made up their mind that Jesus wasn't God. From this day onward, they'll plot his assassination. And you see, every person has to decide for themselves what they think about Jesus. It's not a question you can skirt. No pleading the fifth here. It's an issue everyone faces. Have you pledged your life to Jesus? For God will one day demand an answer of you. Whenever anyone encounters Jesus, it becomes a day of evaluation. Realize this day was the climax of Jesus' three and a half years of ministry. Miracles and healings and changed lives now filled the wake that Jesus had left behind. Thousands of folks who lined the street that day and sang his praise were evidence of his mighty power. Imagine who was in the crowd as he came down the mountain. There was a man born blind who now has got his friends looking over his shoulder. He's pointing out who Jesus is. He can see. There's a little girl who was dead before Jesus spoke life back into her limp body. Now she waits around the corner to see the procession. There's a former demoniac who had roamed the hills and caves of Gadara naked. He's now in his right mind sitting by the road with a palm in his hand that he hopes to lay down before him. And even Lazarus, dead just a week ago, he's also in the crowd. But the Jewish leaders refused to join the common people and embrace Jesus as their Messiah. They remain stubborn. They cop an attitude. They reject Jesus for fear and jealousy and politics 
and prejudice and bitterness. First and foremost, their problem was pride. And yet regardless of their reasons, the fact is they failed in their evaluation. They made a wrong decision. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He didn't produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. See, Jesus forces each of us to make a decision. On that day, Jerusalem's common people reacted to Jesus with adoration, while the Pharisees, they showed condemnation. But nobody shrugged their shoulders and walked off without making an evaluation. Listen to how Jesus answers the Pharisees' skepticism in verse 40. He says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The Pharisees wanted to stop the celebration. But Jesus says there's no stopping here what's been started. The cat is now out of the bag. The evidence is now in. His identity can't be refuted. If the people go silent, then nature will burst forth in praise. Even the rocks. Brought with me this morning. A rock I took off the Mount of Olives on one of my trips to Jerusalem. There's a lot of rocks there. I didn't figure they'd miss one. (laughs) Snuck it in my suitcase and brought it home. This is one of the rocks from the Mount of Olives. This is the rock that Jesus said would sing if his people went silent. Talk about rock music. (laughs) This is one of the real Rolling Stones right here. I suppose this morning we could cease our praise and we could test out this rock. But why join the Pharisees? Why join that motley group in the wrong evaluation? Why miss any opportunity to glorify our great king? Why let the stones have all the fun? Let's humble ourselves and let's acknowledge Jesus, our rock, as king and lord. Today is a day of evaluation. And finally, today is a day of visitation and destination. Verse 41 tells us, Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because Israel's leaders missed God's visitation, it sealed the nation's destination. Jesus predicted that destruction was just around the corner, and it was. In 70 AD, just three decades later, the Roman army sacked the city of Jerusalem. 
Reminds me of the army private who happened upon the general standing there by the paper shredder. The general asked him, he said, young man, my secretary left early today and I can't seem to figure out how to operate this machine. Can you help me? Well, the private snapped to attention. He said, yes, sir, as the general handed him a paper. Well, the private turned on the machine, thought this was a good opportunity for him to impress his superior officer. But just as he released the paper into the shredder, the general said, and by the way, son, I need two copies. Because the private misunderstood his visitation, it sealed his destination. Rather than promotion, he was headed the opposite direction. And this is what happened to the Jewish leaders on their special day. You remember once a man named Job, he shouted at heaven, and he challenged God to take the form of a man and show himself. And over the centuries, angry people have called out and demanded that God reveal himself. But despite their anger, God sat back and he required us to listen to the prophets and examine his handiwork in history and in nature. And yet on this day in Jerusalem, God finally visited his people on the back of a donkey. Can you imagine a more significant day in the history of the nation, even the world? Time strategically prepared specifically, Israel received a divine visitation. But tragically, the nation missed God. Jesus says, verse 42, If you had known Even you, especially in this your day. It was their big day. And they missed it. Imagine a bride sleeping through a wedding. Or a prisoner missing his parole hearing. Or a college student forgetting his final exam. I mean, this was Israel's vital opportunity. Here was the moment the nation had been waiting for centuries and they blew it. And for the last 2,000 years, the Jews have tasted the horrible, tragic, brutal consequences of their decision. You know, it's ironic, but at the spot spot on the Mount of Olives, where most tourists today stand and gawk and smile at the spectacular vista, Jesus wept. For he could already see their future, and with his mind's eye, He watched the horrors of the coming invasion. For in just a few years, Rome would shred and sack the prideful city. And God would judge the nation for its rejection of their Messiah. But it was so unnecessary. If they had just been willing. You know, I think it's suggestive that when Jesus concluded that his own people had rejected him, he didn't grind his teeth He didn't spit in anger. He didn't seethe with hatred. No, Jesus wept. Oh, how Jesus loved these people. He desired to show them the things that would make for their peace. And how they could have used peace. And how they could use peace now. And even over their long span of painful history. Peace continues to elude Israel to this very day. 
On April the 6th, 32 AD, God visited Israel and he came with blessing and peace. Reminds me of the man, he was standing by the road when a rider on horseback flew by. There was an evil look in this rider's eyes. There was blood dripping from his hands. Well, minutes later, a crowd of riders came by in hot pursuit. The bystander shouted to their leader, Who was that man? He responded, A criminal, an evil criminal. He was asked again, And do you seek to bring him to justice? The answer came back, No, we seek to tell him he's been pardoned. And this is why God visited his people. And this is God's intention for you today. This is why he's chasing you. This is why he wants to talk to you. Why are you running from him? God doesn't want to bring down his hammer of judgment. Jesus comes to us today to show us the way to peace and pardon. His visitation is meant to ensure for us a wonderful destination. But when we harden our hearts and when we refuse to follow him and when we buck against his will, Jesus weeps again. How many times has he reached out to you, but you were not willing? Sadly, Jesus' tears still flow down his cheeks when a person misses his visitation. Now, April the 6th, 32 AD, what a day it was. It was Israel's due date. As Jesus said to his people of old, this, your day, it was a day of preparation, a day of celebration, a day of evaluation, a day of visitation, and ultimately a day of destination. It was a day like today. For Jesus still comes to us riding on a donkey. He wants to be our king. And he forces us to choose Will we join in his praise? He comes to us with peace and pardon. and He wants us to follow him. Today, I want to give you an opportunity to choose Jesus. Perhaps you've been coming to this church for weeks now. God is speaking to your heart. Today is your big day. God is visiting you. How will you choose? Let's bow our heads this morning. And as we do, I just want to ask if there's anyone here that would say, Pastor Sandy, I've been running from Jesus. He's been revealing himself to me. He's been tugging at my heart. I know he's real. And I know he wants to be my king. But I've been resisting and running. But today I want to stop. And I want to turn and I want to fall down before him. Make him my Lord. If that's your desire today, I want you just to slip up your hand. I'll pray for you. Anybody here that would just slip up their hand? Say, that's me. Great. I see your hand. That's wonderful. Great. Wonderful. Anybody else? Yeah, great. Good. Good. I see you guys. Up in the balcony. Anybody else? 
Okay, if you raised your hand, let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Lord, forgive me for insisting on my will and my ways. I know that you're Lord. And I know that you love me. And I know that your way is best. Please forgive me for my sin. And this morning, I humble myself. And I bow my knees to you. And I ask you to take over my life. To be my Savior. But not just my Savior. To also be my Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness and for your pardon. And I trust you, Lord. I trust you with my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.